You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Have you heard? The RHISAC Cyber Intelligence Summit is coming to Denver, Colorado from April 9th through the 11th. The summit is part of the RHISAC's mission to help improve cybersecurity across the entire retail and hospitality sector. As a result, it has become the can't-miss event for retail and hospitality cybersecurity practitioners. Join us for three days of professional development and networking with the brightest minds in retail and hospitality cybersecurity. Attendees have access to prominent thought leaders and industry experts and plenty of opportunities for collaboration. For more information and to register, visit summit.rhisac.org. That's summit.rhisac.org. We can't wait to see you in April. Well, hello, everybody. This is Brian Hundley. I'm the Vice President of Intelligence Operations for the RHISAC. And today we have a regular with us on the RHISAC podcast, Courtney Radke, Retail CISO and Principal Architect at Fortinet. Welcome again, Courtney. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Always great to be back here. Not always great to be talking about the same old things that are happening, but it's, it's nice to just get the information out there. So thank you for having me. It's 2022. It's the same thing we're seeing, right? The threats are still out there and, and ransomware still is a prominent threat that we're going to continue to see over time. And with ransomware, it leads us to zero trust and other architectural hygiene issues, right? That our members need to be looking at. Can you talk to us a little bit about what are you guys seeing over there at Fortinet? Yeah. Yeah. We, we touched on it just here at the beginning. It's kind of the same old, same old. And it's, it's unfortunate, but I think it, it gives us a look into the future and helps us, you know, build technology to prevent uh, future issues. And what I mean by that is, you know, we had talked previously about ransomware had this huge rise in 2021. It, we had, you know, a thousand percent, 10, 7x increase in ransomware. It was just enormous. And it was due to the, it, it becoming more of a business and becoming easier to do. You saw ransomware as a service, these cybercrime organizations just recruiting, you know, recruiting, 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 and, and using the same technology that we use against them. And so what we saw, you know, kind of in 2022, our, our research shows that while it, we didn't have that thousand percent increase, it didn't increase again. It's kind of like gas prices. It's just stayed the same, <laughs> you know, so it's just, it's the new normal. We saw this huge increase and now it leveled off, but it hasn't gone down. And, and we've seen a new level of sophistication. And I think what that's led to is, the speed of these incidents, the speed at which these, you know, cyber threat actors are getting into these environments is much, much quicker. The problem being, another one is new as old here and old as new, 90 plus percent of what we see out there is just using a variant of what was there before, whether it's a variant of malware for the delivery, whether it's a variant of a TTP, right, a tactic technique procedure. They're kind of reusing exactly what they had before, right? And so mm-hmm. they haven't had to reinvent the wheel. That said, They've been using some different technologies. They've been using machine learning. They've been using automation to try to get into these environments a little more quickly. Um, so that's kind of what we've seen. We, we've observed not the high levels of increase in ransomware, but we've definitely seen it stay where it was and they become a lot quicker, a lot more sophisticated. And, and these groups are, they're getting larger by the day. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up, we're still seeing a lot of the same thing. What about the solutions, right? 
what are some of the things that, you know, our organizations need to be looking at or are there things that they have already been looking at that could help them to combat ransomware? Yeah, I think a lot of it is, is processes. I, I, you know, I, I recently have spoken at a lot of industry events and talking about the importance of careful planning. I think that goes a long way, but a lot of organizations kind of skip that. They don't have a plan. They don't have a risk matrix. They don't understand what they're protecting and why. And I think that goes a long way. Ransomware has changed in, in how, how damaging it can be as well. So we used to start with, you know, ransomware was they encrypt your files. You pay them. They hopefully give the files back and then you pray that they're not going to attack you again, right? That was kind of the single extortion. Then we saw a double extortion where they're, they're getting in. They're looking for data. You're looking for, you know, volume copies, shadow copies to try to uh, encrypt that or keep you from getting it to increase the likelihood or, or the amount that you'll pay. That, and that was kind of where we sat for the last couple of years. But now we're moving into triple extortion, which is honestly probably the most damaging because of the long-term reputational harm. So what they're doing is they're doing the first, they're doing the second, they're still doing damage, they're still getting money, but now they're holding you hostage because they're using you as a kind of a stepping off point to get to your clients, to get to your customers, to get to your partners, to really just cause your brand long-term harm. So I think you know that's where we're seeing is they're getting damaging, even though we hear about the altruistic cyber criminals that are out there, that they won't attack hospitals or schools and they're uh, you know robbing for the risk, giving to the poor. They're all criminals. They're all there for money. So I think the importance of planning, training, understanding what you're protecting and why, understanding, you know, where the brand reputational harm could come and what effect it could have. I I think doing that and then making sure that leadership has ensured responsibility, you know, who has responsibility in the event of an incident. I think that's extremely important. It's, It's not sexy. It's a lot of planning. It's a lot of stuff on the left side of an attack that you have to do. But what it does is it negates the likelihood of attack or it creates you know less likelihood of attack. But what it also does is during an incident, you know what to do and it's causing less damage. It's causing less dwell time. I talked about speed earlier. Bring that dwell time down to zero is absolutely key. The sooner you understand where they are in your environment, how far they got, how long they were there, that's going to save you more time, you know, more money than you could possibly imagine just from careful planning. You know, there's technologies, obviously. Yeah, I talked about automation that's being used against us, AI that's being used against us. We have to continue in the industry, you know, to be innovators of those technologies, to, to build faster, to build smarter. I talked about it with our, with a, we have a threat intelligence sharing team, a threat intelligence research team, FortiGuard Labs. We see 150,000 different signatures every week, new signatures out of the tens of billions that we sift through. It takes all of that data and they'd be able to turn that data, which is just, you know, ones and zeros and you know, letters, numbers, that's all it is. Once you correlate that, once you correlate data, then it becomes information, then it becomes knowledge, and then you can action on it. So I think it takes people, processes, and technology, all three of them working together, not doing it without careful planning, though. I'd rather have an ounce of planning will be you know, 10 pounds of, of luck, if you will. Courtney, one of the solutions that you hear CISOs talk about quite often is zero trust. There's a lot of challenges with zero trust, right, for some organizations, but can you talk a little bit more about what Fortinet is doing or what you've seen with Zero Trust and and where is it going now? I think it's going a long ways now. I think it's Zero Trust as a as a foundation, as an architecture principle is more attainable than ever before. But it's funny you touched on it that a lot of you know organizations or people think they have Zero Trust or think they provide Zero Trust. I'm actually remote. I'm at a hospitality technology conference and, and just walking through and seeing some of the you know, the collateral and the booths 
talking about zero trust, it's become a buzzword. And it's, that's unfortunate because I think what's happening is it's creating more misconceptions on what zero trust actually is, that zero trust is a thing. You know, we at Fortinet, we don't make a zero trust firewall. It's not a zero trust firewall. It's not a product. It's a bunch of processes, technologies, architectures, and all of it coming together through you know, integration and automation to make you know, a zero trust architecture. Firewalls are involved. Endpoints are involved. The users are involved. All of these things. Really, what it comes down to is, is zero trust is you have to identify. You have to identify your users, your applications, and your devices. You have to have a way to correlate all that data to understand what it is, um, what are your good baselines, and then you have to be able to enforce it. That's very simplified, high-level view, and there's a lot of different technologies in that. Um, I think the way we get there, Gartner coined the phrase uh, cybersecurity mesh architecture, and it's kind of having all of your different disparate technologies in your organization talking to a central point. You know, it sounds good in concept, right? And I think we need to move beyond a step beyond that. We, we all often talk about fabric where, you know, everything has to be API integrated. Everything has to work in tandem together. That's where we need to get to truly get to a zero trust methodology. I think it's going to be the future. I, I think with the sheer amount of devices that are coming online, the sheer amount of networks that never had to be connected to the outside world before, you know, we talk about IoT, IIoT, OT environments that are just becoming pervasive and have to be connected. I think the only way to truly secure these environments, limit the spread inside of the organization, cut that dwell time down to zero, is really moving towards a zero trust architecture. It's not a, it's not a product. Zero trust isn't a product. It's a lot of things coming together and working in tandem to create a, a true zero trust architecture. You touched on a lot of interesting areas. There's a lot of layers you need to create a zero trust architecture. And I think one of the challenges that a lot of CISOs and organizations run into is zero trust is definitely the way of it's, I mean, it's here now. I don't even want to say it's the way of the future, right? Because it's already here and it's something that organizations need to take a hard look at. But a lot of times they run into challenges where the CISO is trying to convince the IT teams that, you know, hey, this is the thing we need to do. Can you talk about some of the, the challenges that CISOs see and how do they overcome selling the idea of zero trust to their IT counterparts? Yeah, I think the challenge is, is we kind of touched on it, is everybody has a different idea of what zero trust is. And, mm-hmm. you know, honestly, the network teams, they have just as much stake in it as the you know security teams. I think at the core of it, honestly, what it does is it breaks down the silos. We always talk about converging networking security, and that's where it truly needs to be. It goes back to the planning and understanding where your risky areas are, areas of, are, that are most vulnerable. A lot of those are going to be the low-hanging fruit of the network. And what you have to do is quantify your risk and then assign who's going to be responsible for it. And it's probably going to be somebody on that network team. Now, if somebody on that network team is responsible for telling their board or their shareholders, this is what I'm doing to protect this really sensitive area, most likely they're probably going to ask the security team, hey, how do I do this? Well, zero trust is probably one of the approaches. You're going to start with some classification of what you have, understand what your assets are, your users, your applications. Do you have any segmentation? All right, now let's move towards micro-segmentation. And it just continues to build out until you've started to build your framework, whether you know it or not, of zero trust. That's where it, really where it's going. It's the threats that are out there, how sophisticated, advanced they are, how fast they're moving, that is going to necessitate a move to zero trust, whether they know it or not. So I think by working in tandem, not butting heads and understanding we're all responsible, we're all in this together, let's work together on it. There are going to be bottlenecks. There are going to be times where some of this technology may not be implemented as somebody else does, right? Other businesses may be able to implement zero trust faster 
than others, according to company culture and some other things that you may have to do it a little differently. And that's fine. Zero trust, it's not a single thing. It, it doesn't look the same across really any organization because it's going to depend on their size, their scope, their risk posture, their company culture. But that's okay. You can move towards a zero trust architecture in baby steps, crawl, walk, run, and, and get there. But I think it really necessitates working together, both the network and security teams, and just taking ownership of the risks that are out there in these organizations. And, and you know, it's interesting. You, you talk about, you know, working together on these things. And, and I've even heard these arguments myself where the IT teams are concerned with outages or application issues that zero trust could cause or, you know, network control, access control impacts and things like that. Is there any advice that you have for CISOs to help them to alleviate those concerns when it comes to zero trust? Yeah, I, I think we always, you know, as, as security practitioners, we always have to be in the mindset, and it wasn't like this previously, trust me. We have to be in the mindset of it's, you know, security is operational, do no harm. If security stops the business from doing business, it's not doing its work, right? It's not doing its job. We have to make sure that we're not in the business of saying no, you're in the business of saying yes the right way. And I, I think that's where security needs to, to get to. Don't get me wrong. There are going to be operational challenges in implementing some of these technologies. There's just some legacy processes, some legacy things that aren't going to be an easy lift and shift or move, uh, you know, into a zero trust methodology. But I think the, the, the beauty of it now is you can maintain two kind of separate environments. You can do zero trust onboarding of just specific applications, specific users, networks, things like that. And they can start to live in harmony for a while until you can, you know, properly migrate to that next iteration of whatever zero trust is for your organization. And I, the beauty of it is, like I said, it's easier for companies to, to move into that than ever before. A lot of organizations, a lot of, you know, IT companies are, are kind of taking this zero trust approach and, and building it into the cornerstone of, of their products and services that they're offering. Not to muddy the waters and say everybody has a zero trust thing because there's not a zero trust thing. But they're building a, a, you know, upon the frameworks and, and the core methodologies of what Zero Trust is, you know, they're doing that in their products. And, and the more organizations do that and we can kind of work together and have that mesh approach, that, that fabric type approach, it's going to be a lot easier for these organizations to do. But you're always going to have, you know, business processes that may need to have white glove. There, there might be process disruptions, but the ability to limit them now is, I think, greater than ever before because it's probably already being built in some of the investments that these companies already have. They're not being asked to rip and replace everything in their environment to move into zero trust. A lot of it, they're just natively or organically growing into a more zero trust approach. It's interesting to talk about the, the organic growth, right? And zero trust has changed a lot since its first release. Can you talk about some of the changes of where it was or, or let's talk about Let's back up for a second. Let's talk about where it was and then where it's where it is now and how much better it is at this point. Yeah, I think zero trust previously, it was a very unknown and it was it's honestly still being defined. There's not a tried and true. This is what zero trust is for, for me. Again, zero trust is the methodology of you have to understand your assets, what is on your network, your applications, users, devices. You have to profile them, classify them then you have to be able to correlate that information and have an enforcement point. Only now, only in the last couple of years, have we gotten to kind of those three core things, identify, correlate, and then enforce, have to have an enforcement point somewhere. And now we've gotten it to, previously it was only one area of your business. Zero Trust didn't expand into your OT environment. Zero Trust didn't expand into your cloud environments. A lot of Zero Trust kind of started at core, and it started as a remote access methodologies, right? I, I want to make sure that the users coming onto my network can't access anything that I don't want them to. Well, when you start phrasing it like that, 
And when it's described as, you know, trust no one all the time, well, that's not necessarily true, right? We can create methods that we know this person or this asset or, or this application is what it says it is, and it should have this access at this time. I think the biggest issue was we've had some disruptions over the last few years, and it's maybe not an issue. I think it actually may have moved the industry forward, right? We've had to innovate by necessity, move into this zero trust approach because of the work from home, because of the transient workforce that we've had. It's, it's forced organizations into thinking differently of opening up some of their environments, which has been scary. A lot of them have come back and, and tried to understand, okay, how do I do this differently? How do I make my network more agile, more accessible, but not necessarily expose me to more risk? And I think what it was previously was a very rigid, this is what we think it is based on you know whoever in the industry said this is what zero trust is. And it became too much of a four walls that if you go beyond this, you're not doing any business. And I don't think that was attainable because again, as we said, it's operational do no harm. If the business can't work, you're probably not going to be successful in implementing these technologies. So as it's become more accessible, it's become more widespread and people saying they have zero trust, which may be a detriment to the industry, but it is becoming more accessible. There's more flexibility in how you implement it. And there's not a one-size-fits-all solution, too. I think that's the important thing is organizations can move into this methodology in whatever way suits their business. And I think that's more than ever before. It's not a you have you must have X or you don't have zero trust. That's not the case anymore. It can be shaped to what your business is and what your culture is of your organization. You know, Courtney, we've covered a lot of ground today. You know, we've talked about the why for zero trust, talked about the different solutions out there, challenges and changes to zero trust over time. Are there any closing remarks you'd like to leave for our members or anyone else on zero trust or anything else that you'd like to you know, leave closing remarks on before we close out? I think it's important, the, the threat intelligence sharing that is out there that, you know, our industry, us and, and you guys do, our traditional competition does through things like the Cyber Threat Alliance. It is only ones and zeros. You, you, you correlate that and then it becomes information. And then if, over time, if you've seen it over time, then it becomes knowledge. But now we're kind of getting into Yoda territory. So we you know, craft a, a funny joke on that one. But I think data, turn it into information, turn that into knowledge over time. And what we do, you know, in our organization, you know, Fortinet and FortiGuard is we look constantly every day, the 150,000 events, so billions of alerts and things that we see out there all the time. And I think putting that together and using the technologies like machine learning, like AI, like neural networks to move quicker than the adversaries is absolutely, it's absolutely critical. And, and again, I want to stress on the zero trust approach organizations shouldn't be scared and think that they're doing it wrong if they don't do one thing that somebody said you must do for zero trust. Zero trust is not a product. You can't go buy zero trust off the shelf. It's, it's just not there. You have to build it and you have to build it according to the needs of your organization and using the trusted partnerships that you have out there. I think that's, that's very important and it shouldn't be a scary concept for these organizations to try to move that direction. The cyber threat actors that are out there are basically pushing you in that direction. You're, you're going to have to go there eventually if you want to protect your organization. But don't think it's such a scary concept that you get paralysis and moving towards you know that eventual goal. Courtney, man, as always, it has been very enlightening today and love having you on the show. Thanks for speaking with us today and look forward to talking to you again in the future. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Uh, thanks, Brian, for having me. We're happy to, to partner with the RHISAC on this. You're an amazing resource for everybody out there in the industry. I highly encourage anybody that's not using you as a resource 
to do so today. We're just happy to partner with you guys.